Reaching Toward Your Light, Microdosing on Life to Self-Heal from Your Three Trauma Triggers. Intro, Loyalty is Oppression. So I'm recording this with no shirt on because it feels even more authentic than wanting to present this project through my voice. Some parts to recreate and reconnect with the experience. I don't just mentally take myself there. I want to physically be in that space. Being young, being a kid, I was always walking around the house without a shirt. Trauma was my birthright. As a fetus, I took on the mental and physical trauma that my mother was living through. During those early adolescent years, friends and family taught me that my feelings didn't matter. It didn't matter that I felt hurt. It didn't matter that I felt a way about something. Growing up, we didn't always have the language to articulate and explain how we felt. I feel a way about that, right? I feel a way about that. And you understand what it means. I, I don't have to sell my victimhood. I don't have to add a specific language. Trauma's black and white sometimes. I thought about going to see a therapist around 2010. If I couldn't trust the people I knew and loved and grew up with, how could I trust a stranger? What could a therapist really tell me? What would they reveal about my feelings that I hadn't already learned? I remember every moment of my life where I truly showed emotion. And I remember because they're all associated with the lows of my life. Moments where I broke and showed weakness. Other times, moments where I had no choice but to show weakness. Some of it I've learned to let go of, others I haven't. Before pitching the original proposal to agents, Vanessa introduced me to the feelings wheel. Looking at these adjectives and following along the color spectrum would elevate and translate my thoughts into a language that the everyday person would understand. I needed to translate because being angry for me is just being tight. If someone disrespects me, they violated me. Sometimes my feelings are verbs that describe your actions instead of my reaction. And if you're from where I'm from, you understand those feelings. You understand those words. I was happy whenever I found a new adjective to replace and express an emotion because it meant my language and my writing was expanding. But each word took me further away from what I was processing. I was making my writing more relatable for other people to understand, but it stopped representing who I was. The English language was making its last parasitic claim on my tongue. If I wrote this book, if I presented this work of art, the way books are traditionally written and presented, then I'd live under the shadow of those words forever, and that would disconnect me from my past and my truth. If I'm going to tell my story, I have to tell it authentically. And English, standard English, does not allow me to represent myself authentically. This book became an audio book because speech is the only way I can authentically tell my story in my native tongue. Ebonics, Haitian Creole, and the standard American English. I need all three to represent me. This book also became an, an audio book because everyone said no. If I truly believe in my work, I have the capacity. I've been doing the work for years to present something through audio form. So why not? Why not take this last gamble on myself? Art should connect you with yourself. As an author, I could never create art using standard English because it would limit my self-expression. I already assimilated every day. My art needs to be pure and layered. 
My mother moved from Haiti to the U.S. and she learned English to infiltrate and assimilate into the standard of the American culture, which is representative of whiteness. But she kept her native tongue and she kept her culture along the way. There is no culture in the U.S. I had to create my own, but my trauma wouldn't even let me become the leader in my own life. How could I create a culture for anyone else? As a toddler, the sound of the bedroom door opening would trigger me because I knew it meant my father was leaving for the night. I'd wait by a fourth floor kitchen window until I heard his keys jingling in the streets and repeatedly scream, Daddy! Daddy! As he walked to his car, waved goodbye to me, and drove off. Some nights, I'd chase the red tail lights of his 1988 Mitsubishi Colt Turbo from the kitchen window to the living room, ending in the bedroom as I watched the red tail lights disappear behind trees, leaves, and branches. I didn't understand why he kept leaving. I watched TV all the time. The dads never left. They always stayed. No one consoled me on those nights. My first trauma trigger sparked here, rejection. But eventually, I realized that crying didn't make a difference because he never stayed. My feelings didn't matter, and it was my responsibility to get over it. Eventually, I learned acceptance, and screaming daddy in fear of abandonment became bye daddy and accepting that I'd see him tomorrow, because he always came back. That was just patchwork, though. Because a few years later, I learned that he wasn't my biological father. I am a lifelong student of life. I ask questions. I do research. I'm a student to life and to life experiences. That's the language I use. And on the most basic level, I just view it as me understanding the external, since it is in overabundance, just to understand myself and where I fit in. Where do I belong? When am I a victim? When am I in the right? Trauma is my birthright. Trauma is birthright for a lot of us. But the victim mindset, living in the victim mindset, teaches you that something is wrong off-rip. It is the standard. My mother is well-traveled. She keeps photo albums in the house of her experiences between the 70s and 80s. And as a kid, I always ask questions when we look through the album. Who's that? Who's this? Where is this? What are you doing here? Who's that man? Who's that woman? There was always a man in the pictures. I thought I knew everyone my mother knew. But the first time I saw this bald man in one picture, I didn't think anything of it. I went through pictures and I saw him sometimes with glasses, sometimes without, dressed up. In every picture, he had an angry disposition and mean, stern face to him. Who's that? Oh, that's just a family friend. Everyone else had a name, but he didn't. So eventually I let it go. I always remember the blue emergency contact cards that they used to give students in school. Every year, I would put my father's name on a card, under father. His name was different, but I just thought my parents weren't married. I didn't really process. And I remember that in the second grade, when we got the emergency contact card, I went home, I filled it out, I put my mother's information under mother. I left father blank and under emergency contact. I put my father's name and I wrote family friend. I ended up swapping my father with my biological father using the same language that my mother introduced to me, family friend. That summer, my mother sat me down in the kitchen and she told me about my biological father, Benito Janice. I found out he was murdered when I was two years old. And all I remember is crying. All I could ever do is cry as a kid. Crying was my only response because I learned early on that 
As long as I get these cries out, I'll get over it. Five seconds into my tears, my mother stopped me. She said, yo, don't cry for this man. This man is the devil. I just cried even harder. Grabbing by the hand, she shared a story with me. I never even met the man, but at some point, the stories my mother told me made me hate Benito. I empathized with her pain because she was alive to tell her side of the story. I always knew her mental trauma was mine to inherit, but now I wondered if the physical trauma was too. And I wonder if the recently discovered dent in my head is from the day he hit my mother while she was pregnant with me. Is this also why I have mild scoliosis? Did the force vibrate through her spine, ribs, and organs and leave this everlasting impression and a reminder that I can be molded from someone else's force? As months went on, I learned more about the secret life everyone had before me. I learned that I was the youngest of nine children Benito had with three other women, four half-brothers, three half-sisters, and my biological sister. I felt like a cruel joke was being played on me. I spent my entire early childhood resentful of my family for lying to me. And I used to be angry at my mother. But growth is understanding what else could she have done but tell me the truth when she felt like she was strong enough to. I forgot about a lot of the traumas until I started writing the initial proposal and making random notes on my phone. I remembered my childhood beatings for stealing, talking in class, or getting bad grades. My mother even beat me with a belt in front of my fourth grade class. Kids made fun of me and saying Michael Jackson's beat it. Sometimes at home, I had to kneel on a cheese grater and face the wall for 10 minutes before I even felt the belt's initial crack on my skin. Call it ajune. I never made the same mistakes twice because I didn't want to get it beaten. But beatings are cultural. My beatings originated from French slave owners whipping my Haitian ancestors. But even with freedom from white oppression, delayed physical, mental, and spiritual traumas of slavery were still mine to inherit. Sometimes I forget the trauma, not as a defense mechanism. I'm just so far removed from its impact in my life that I have to make time to search for those memories. Traumas are a wake-up call that you're not above the filth of this life experience. Black experience taught me that I was at the bottom of society. Christianity taught me that I was a sinner at birth, and everything I experienced firsthand added to the mental traumas that brought on depression, nihilism, misanthropy, thanatophobia, and alcoholism. Part of my addictive personality shows up in all of these. I'm a thanatophobic. I feel foolish saying it because it's founded on my weak ego. I fear death. Who am I to live forever? I'm just addicted to this life experience. I've learned to believe that peace at death is being able to let go of the past. Your time here is over, and if you're fighting to live on this level, this consciousness, this plane of existence, you aren't cut out for what's next because you don't have the ability to let go. One day on a walk, I was thinking about death and honoring people through death. A few steps later, I saw a dead duckling with flies sitting on it. I started taking pictures. That's life. The duckling died, and if I've been working on my photography, I should be skilled enough to take a beautiful picture of this duckling and honor it through photography that I share. That's one way to honor that duckling. That's one way to honor life. The duckling made contact with a higher being, and as a higher being, I have a responsibility to honor that moment in this life experience. That's all life is to me now. 
We all have three trauma triggers. The social trauma trigger that you inherit from your social group, the personal traumas that are unique to your life experience, and the spiritual traumas that lead to losing hope and faith within yourself and this life experience. Some experiences children shouldn't have to learn about, but life is fair that way. None of us get to decide the full extent of our lived experience. No one makes a deal before they get here. We all just show up and do what we can with what we have while we can. I was birthed into the historical and ever-present trauma of the black experience. I became a born-again Christian leading into junior year of high school. Depression was slowly seeping in. I felt lost and alone, but I was also looking for closure with Benito. I was going to live Christ-like, but I also had an ulterior motive. I was going to make it to heaven, and if I didn't see him, then my mother was right. He was the devil, and fuck him. Then I'd be at peace. Religion became a new addiction. I started my addictions with sugar, eating boxes of apple jacks in one day until the roof of my mouth was sore and bleeding. I loved tropical fantasies, quarter waters, and I'd buy two to three bags of M&M, dump them in a brown paper bag. I carry them in and eat them one by one. I always told myself, save some for later, but I never had the willpower to. Once I had my first orgasm in the seventh grade, there was no looking back on chasing that rush of finally feeling elevated. I wanted to be righteous, but sex on television, rap and R&B, women combined with finally gaining some confidence, spilled into bringing other people into my sin. In high school, my Christian girlfriend would sit on my lap in the park across from my high school. We'd meet up a half hour before school. She'd sit on my lap, slowly twist and grind her Latin hips until I came in my pants. I've been kink-friendly for years. But eight years into Christianity, no healing in sight, no willpower to move past my addictions, I started talking to God less and myself more. Talking became questions, and questions led to uncomfortable answers. Would I remember my family if I made it to heaven and they didn't? If I did remember them, wouldn't I be sad they were in hell? If I didn't remember anyone, who would I even be since they've influenced me and were part of my memories? Does my memory get wiped? How is praising God for eternity different from picking cotton for a lifetime? I'm good. Between 2007 and 2010, while studying at CUNY Hunter, I lost all faith in healing from the black experience after taking African literature and African-American political social change courses. Reading Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe and Devil on the Cross by Noguji Tiongo taught me that assimilation meant the death of culture. When I was mostly pessimistic about life, I respected Okonkwo's suicide, but now I realize that he's a coward who self-fulfilled his prophecy. I learned that West African countries and nations were the real cause for the transatlantic slave trade and the pillaging of the African diaspora. The black experience felt fraudulent. No one cared about anyone in this life experience. So what was the point of it all? I even went to a sociology professor and asked him if life was a selfless experience because we're only memories for other people when we die. He laughed and said, well, how does it matter? You're dead. I searched online for a week, looking for a therapist who might offer an answer I'd accept. But therapy wasn't a space for black people in 2010. I still think it's limited today because 80% of therapists are white. How will you help me emotionally heal from the generational trauma of slavery, Jim Crow, Tuskegee, Emmett Till, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, or Breonna Taylor? 
What could you tell me about Haiti being embargoed and forced to pay 90 million francs to France after fighting and winning their independence? What would you say about the U.S. ousting President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the first democratically elected Haitian president in 1998? Forgive? No. Forget? Never. If I allowed a white therapist to indoctrinate me into their system of therapy through the systemic indoctrination of college, who would I become? Like fellow Kuti once said, I don't be gentleman like that. I had to heal from these traumas myself. The foundation for my personal traumas are rejection and death. Thanatophobia by way of losing my biological father at a young age. Rejection from having my father leave and feeling that my innate experience in life is constantly rejection. My spiritual trauma was triggered when I had my first panic attack. I lost my faith. Depression became the standard. Life had no meaning. And eventually, I die and no longer exist. The first night, I wanted to yell and scream, but my mother was in the next room. But I was also too embarrassed to show her this weak version of myself. So I ate it. I grabbed my pillow, sunk my teeth into it, and ripped at it like a mad dog. Energy needs to be transferred. And as I've learned, if I can just transition energy and pain into something, whether a pillow, whether tears, the trauma will move on and I'll be okay. But one night became two years of panic attack. I couldn't go to sleep until the world was perfectly quiet and my body shook in terror and fear. How could I even conceptualize non-existence? It sounds redundant, right? How can you imagine yourself not existing? I look at it like this. If you ever daydream about being a superhero, you ever daydream about having more money in your bank account, it's just the opposite of that. Worst case scenario. But the worst case scenario is a reality. In 2012, I moved to Buenos Aires, and after a month of rejection, I was back on a 17-hour flight to New York as a failure, hoping to find a new career. Seven months later, I was on an Amtrak to Miami, hoping to make Miami home. The sun and sand gave me a little more juice to start self-honoring. I had $1,550, a shared apartment on hold, and, and two months to get a job before my money ran out, and I went back to New York, a failure again. A year later, I finally had my own room. I reconnected with my passion for writing, and I earned a management position at work. A day before my first anniversary in Miami, I saw a homeless guy sitting under my AC. Ten minutes later, I walked out with a plastic bag filled with an oven-warmed chicken wrapped in aluminum foil, a juice box, and a metal knife and fork. I was reading a book in my room, but when I heard him slurp the juice box, I thought, the universe is my God. I didn't know what it meant at the time, but it sparked a healing trigger. Ten years later, I'm self-actualizing and have finally found an outlet to share my story. And I really want to share my story because I have so many people around me whose stories have molded me into a decent human being. And I want to share their stories, too, because they may never get a chance to share their life experience. A lot of healing was, can you let go of the past, physically, mentally, and spiritually? Can you move on past rejection? Can you accept death? I'm trying to be limitless, but that means 100% happiness. I'm 85% happy with my life. I'm 85% healed, 15% left over for the active present participle healing. 10% is growth that I'm actively working to change. But that 5%, those are the things that I compartmentalize, knowing that they are the most important changes that I need to make, but I'm unsure if I will ever have the capacity to truly heal from them. Part of that 5% is racism. 
2012, I talked to my then boss and he thought racism was over. I knew it wasn't, but I couldn't pinpoint how I knew. I didn't even make the connection of being stopped and frisked a month before that while walking home late at night. But today, I can quickly point out racism. From Ferguson, Missouri in 2015, after Mike Brown was murdered, up to George Floyd's murder in 2020, I have become withdrawn and skeptical of whiteness in an entirely different way. Learning, witnessing, and existing within blackness should be a call for racism. How does looking through the glass ceiling not invoke disdain and fury at the group holding you back? The black experience matters. Socially, we feel like it's gotten better. Of the 614 billionaires in the U.S., only seven are black. 76% of millionaires are white, while only 8% are black. Blackness has global influence, but minimal capital in comparison. The world used their voices, white people vandalized in the name of, thinking about rage against the machine, killing in the name of, just destroying in the name of, and wondering, you know, maybe that's just the reality of the white experience, right? A lot of their histories under monarchs and single rule. So there's this innate love for authority and single ideologies. I can't move on from racism because all of the growth feels relative. Law of relativity is just that things are just going to get better. As long as the earth keeps spinning, we'll see some type of progress. You have to. It's innate. But black progress has benefited individuals, not the overall experience. Black Lives Matter didn't fit, doesn't feel like a big win. And it doesn't feel that way because at some point, the black experience stopped being in control of that march and movement. And it went back to individuals with individual motives. The black experience is rejection off rip and the imminent fear of death just because a nigga said so. If you think about two ideas long enough, there's always room to find a connection. It doesn't always need to be connected, but sometimes the idea allows you to keep your guard up because, hey, you never know. I watched a video of Elijah McClain playing his violin for sheltered cats, and I cried, yo. I cried for that man. But it took Elijah McClain for me to personify what was really going on. I'm an introvert. I just want to be left alone. I felt that. And if someone like Elijah McClain couldn't escape the clutches of a racist system, that emboldens poor training and apathetic community relations, then it was finally real to me that no black person ever would. I care about everyone's cause, but I can't give everyone's cause the same energy. I need to focus on what's important to me, just like you need to focus on what's important to you. Bonds are important to me, and the black experience sells the idea of brotherhood, of loyalty, of respect. It's what our movies, TV shows showed us growing up. But the lived experience is what black people share about trying to do business with other black people. While some people reconnected with depression in 2020 and 2021, I found TikTok, confidence, identity, and even celebrated Kwanzaa for the first time. I didn't have a single life purpose anymore. I had two now. All things self, all things community. It was always there for me, but I never made a connection because I never knew who my community was. But self-healing brought me closer because it introduced me to my confidence and allowed me to find my true form of artistry. My artistry is this audio book, it's a black excellence calendar, it's the never hide, work in retail, work in your brand, and it's my TikTok channel. It's inspiring and looking past limits. And through honoring my first purpose, I discovered my second purpose, which is my social purpose. I'm here to elevate the black and the Haitian experience. 
a renaissance needed to happen. And while I was realizing my second purpose, I started connecting with more black people who placed community as part of their brand. In 2019, a childhood best friend and I reconnected to work on his memoir. We spent two years working on the proposal between him, myself, his agent, and her assistant. Then one day he called me and explained that throughout these past two years, his agent always felt like the writing was missing emotion, but she never told him because she didn't want to insult him or me. I sent an upgraded draft within two days and it was better, but still needed work. Six months later, he called me and told me he signed a book deal with a top publishing agency through his agent and one of her writers. In January 2022, I filed a small claim suit against a black bookstore in Philadelphia for an unpaid invoice. For two years, I compiled a list of 366 black global figures who were pioneers in redefining the black experience to make my black excellence calendar and journal bundle. Why was it okay to accept the product but not pay for it? Nah, that's not how we do things. I've even tried working with friends on ideas until I slowly realized that the pool of bonds I had made over the years were people who only acted like they were against the status quo. I'm never surprised when other races disregard me, but I expect better from everyone who uses blackness as a foundation for their business and identity. At 36, I finally grasped my Haitian-American essence within the black culture, but instead of being met with open arms, I was being pushed away and faulted even when I held up my end of the social contract. I was getting tired and drifting into the trauma of African lit class. Early in 2022, someone on Etsy messaged me about purchasing 175 of the bundles wholesale. I should have been happy about the wholesale inquiry, but I started thinking about the amount of work, time, and initial costs needed to prepare and ship the order. I didn't want to do it. I was tired of all of y'all. My pent-up exhaustion, frustration, and annoyance from the past two years, and my nihilism started creeping back in. After a decade of trying to balance my early childhood trauma triggers, I was finally proud of myself, though, but still didn't feel like it was enough. So three days before Christmas 2021, I submitted my FAFSA for the 2022-2023 school year, hoping I could get free money for a master's degree in counseling. I already had two degrees that I never used, but life wasn't working as an inspiring artist, so going back into an unbiased system that rewarded me would make me feel valued. College is the final frontier of educational spaces founded on whiteness. But the consistent, small, everyday ones would help me escape the constant letdown to what was becoming my new life experience. I didn't know how to pay for it, but I'm a researching person. Discovering my social responsibility also meant I would be one of a handful of black males in a space with the responsibility to pass the word about the importance of culture and healing to support BIPOC therapists and clients. But what would therapy even look like in three years? Would mental health become a phase like physical health diet crazes, the Mediterranean mentality? The Atkins attitude? Would mental health prescriptions be the new socially accepted opioids? Drugs bring out a different side of us. I used to smoke weed to relax. Now I smoke to be creative. 2021, I microduced on shrooms and woke up from the drag people were placing on my life, and that was part of me moving on. Dead weight wouldn't allow me to be limitless. Minimalism is a gateway for feeding my needy reward system, and I'd never been happy in life. I ran and hiked weekly. I had a place to live with heat and running water. I always had food, and everyone I cared about was healthy. But the other side was the 10% of unhappiness that was taking a bit longer to move on from. I needed more money. I felt like a failure still at times, and my addictive personality manifest in new ways. 
2020, it was marijuana to cope with the new normal. But that 5% of my unhappiness is my paranoia and self-defense against unavoidable social conditions. It's the lingering misanthropy for my 36 years of negative experiences with family, friends, and strangers. It's the constant struggle between wanting to be part of this solution, but wondering if I have the same value to the grand scheme of the universe as a tardigrade does to me. The 5% tells me that socially, I am an invalid who will hit a ceiling and have someone tell me that this is the limit for my success and growth. But I don't listen to negativity anymore, so I write down all of my ideas. I'm pessimistic about the present because I've seen the past, but I'm optimistic about the future of the black and Haitian experience because I finally believe in collective work again. Nihilism used to feed my ego into believing that nothing matters or ever will. Self-healing taught me that it was arrogant to define the entire life experience when I've only seen 36 years worth. What are your percentages? Which traumas will you take to your grave? Which traumas can you work through on your own? And which traumas need a caring ear of support? I chose and needed to heal on my own because therapy felt too white. And I learned that too much whiteness by way of the U.S. leads to the suppression and destruction of culture and identity. As long as I honor myself at the moment, I can keep self-healing. My therapy happens during early morning walks and runs on a trail while recording a podcast, focusing my camera lens on a cloud during a sunset, weightlifting, reading, and even writing. I need physical and mental energy bursts to keep depression and limiting thoughts away from me. I used to be in a funk for years. Then it became a few months, and now it only lasts a few hours or a few days. I can live with 15% unhappiness. I couldn't have reached this point of freedom and expression until I started healing from my trilogy of trauma triggers. Christianity taught me about the importance of the trilogy, and the magic school bus taught me that the strongest shape is three-sided. All good stories wrap up in a trilogy that inspires readers to accept their destiny. The Fellowship of the Rings is about the physical labor to start the journey, because once you start, you have a responsibility to honor your fate. The Two Towers is about the social struggle needed to unite communities against dragons, dark wizards, and dangerous ideologies. And The Return of the King is about the spiritual labor of life. Aragon has to accept his fate as the leader of humans, and Frodo has to win the battle for his soul. Sometimes I feel free, but then Ahmaud Aubrey gets murdered, and now I find myself in one less safe space. But it isn't fear, it's caution. I wish I didn't have to feel that way while I jog. No one should. Other times I feel free because I'm tapping into my primal instinct, jogging shirtless with the sun kissing my chocolate skin and making me feel like a wild, sexy beast. I'm a hobby whore, a jack of all trades, and a master of none. I microdose on life experiences to gain new skills and discover new interests. And no matter what happens in my life, I've learned to be disloyal to ideas, ideologies, habits, and negative thoughts that limit my potential. I'll never learn what works for me unless I try it. So I live my life trying and choosing what always allows me to self-honor. Everything's moving together. There's a part of me that feels overwhelmed. I have to do this 12 more times, start college, work, move, start a family. I should feel overwhelmed, but I'm a workhorse. My Haitian heritage has instilled in me that nothing can break me as long as I love it. I know I am meant to be a resource for solving solutions. I could have never became a mental health counselor three years ago, two years ago, even one year ago. I hadn't learned enough, and I didn't have enough to bring to the profession that would personalize the experience for clients. I was still working on myself. But now I'm reconnecting with thoughts I've had 
over the past years that would really allow me to personalize my counseling sessions. Finally, it feels like it's right. Finally, it feels like it's time. The concept of this book is learning that it isn't all about me. If this was all about me, then I would present this project on my own. I would say, hey, look at me. I'm so smart. I have all the answers and solutions to the world because I found the answers and solutions in my life. I've always known that it's more than me. That's why I look to other people. That's why I look to the external so I can learn about myself, still sharp and still. Sometimes I influence the external and sometimes the external influences me. So this is Reaching Towards Your Light, Microdosing on Life, a mental health journey to bring self-awareness. And it is also the awareness that awareness isn't enough. Omniscience is just relative awareness and omnipotence is just muscle memory. I can press the weight because I've done it before enough that it no longer fatigues my cells and my muscles. This is a story about becoming omniscient and omnipotent within your own self. What could a therapist tell me and ask me questions about? I would look at them. I wouldn't even respect them because I don't know them as a person or individual. The title means nothing to me. You have to earn that level. I have a basic narcissistic trait. It's a defense mechanism because I know that there's a, an external abundance trying to mold me. So who are you to tell me anything? A true narcissist would never respect a therapist. Illuminated, a companion guide for self-healing through darkness. I went to Vanessa because I've known her for years. I respect her and I trust her vision and artistry. I don't know if she would claim this, but I think she has her own self-defined philosophy that's part of objectivism. She is structured. She has well-balanced masculine and feminine energy. She has strong driving energy. And part of this is knowing that she has something amazing to offer with the work that she does. I was trying to figure out how to elevate this book and not make it just about me. So I asked Vanessa to offer her clinical lens for a few reasons. I wanted her to reshape some of my limiting beliefs and perspectives. I wanted her to offer additional language to connect with more people. And I want her clinical lens and clinical language to make this something that is that can be utilized for therapists and clients. I'm going to stay authentic within my own right as much as I can and need to. If cursing offends you, if the word nigga offends you, then this is not for you and that's okay. I curse for expression, not as a need. So this isn't going to be all curses. It'll be just, just like this is, just talking and inserting as needed. Throughout this process, I'm never going to listen to anything Vanessa publishes. I'll record, I'll send it to her. She'll do her work and we'll do this until the book is complete. We're looking to offer a balance to life solutions. Self-healing and therapy can live independently from each other, and they should always complement each other. This project feeds our individual first purposes through honoring our second purpose. And I'm thankful to Vanessa. See you in a month. Peace.